Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. You know, I've talked a lot about uh, science and faith on this podcast before. Um, I've talked about, you know, the uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and the primeval history. And um, and I've had other guests, um, guests from BioLogos and, and things, because I think it's really important that um, the church stop being so anti-evolution. It is doing a lot of damage. Um, I'm not really, I don't really care whether or not uh, people accept evolution. It's just, uh, you know, you can disagree with it if you, if you want to, but don't make it uh, a hill to die on. And so many Christians do. And so many uh, debates between evolution and intelligent design is framed as an atheism versus theism debate. And that, this puts a lot of Christians in a bind. And so I want to make uh, I don't care if you don't think evolution is true. I think it's true. But if you don't, that's okay. I just want you to know that if you were ever convinced of it, that's an option for you. You you can, the Bible allows you to go that way. In fact, the you know, my view of, of Genesis allows you to accept any, even, in, even possible scientific view uh, of origins that, you know, the scientific community might churn up. Because it doesn't take a, a stance on that. And my guest today has written a book uh, about, a, it's a science faith book. It's called Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, the Bible and Modern Science and the Trouble of Making It All Fit. Uh, her name is Janet Kellogg-Ray. Janet Kellogg-Ray is, uh, is currently an adjunct clinical assistant professor at the University of North Texas in the Department of Biological Sciences. She holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of North Texas and MED in gifted education from Hart, from Hardin Simmons University and a BS ed in biology from Abilene Christian University. Janet, it's good to have you on the show today. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us your story. How did you get into this whole uh, this whole debate uh, about the you know, the science and faith uh, issue that eventually led you to say, you know, this is, I, I need to write, I need to write a book on this and publish it. Well, you know, evolution wasn't uh, really an issue for me growing up. I grew up in a church that would be best described as very conservative, uh, fundamentalist. Um, we had our, our church, um, group, our group's motto was we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. And so evolution was just a non-issue. Um, in, our, in, in our culture, evolution would have been synonymous with atheism. And we would have no more really discussed or debated evolution than we would have discussed or debated the existence of Jesus. And so it really wasn't anything that entered my um, consciousness, probably until junior high or high school. Um, 
And the, for the first time in, in junior high, actually, and there's a story behind that, how I ended up in uh, seventh grade science instead of choir. My dad taught in the school and he didn't like the um, lack of discipline they had in the choir. So he insisted that I take the seventh grade um, science class, to which I credit him with a decision that changed the trajectory of my life because I fell in love with science in seventh grade. And for the first time, we studied, you know, at the time, what we called the animal kingdom. We don't use that taxonomy anymore. But for the first time, I saw that there were animals beyond, you know, the puppies, the kitties, the cows, the horses that I saw out in the country where I lived. And I saw animals like sea stars and earthworms. And this continued on into high school or in high school biology, where it was very um zoology oriented, where we looked at a survey of, of all of the animals from the uh, simplest protists all the way up to the, the, the vertebrates, the mammals. And I, I, I distinctly remember having these thoughts that I never knew that these animals had these um, systems and organs in common and that you could see patterns across the entire animal kingdom. Um, in my mind, everything was just created individually and specially. And for the first time, I remember having this bit of a disconnect as to um, the animals seemed to have some kind of a connection here. And I wasn't exactly sure what that was, I definitely didn't have the vocabulary at the time to, to, to word that, but I took that love for biology into, um, into college. I was a biology major with uh, the secondary education credentialing, and we studied it much more in depth. And I had a wonderful biology education at my Christian university, and we very conveniently ignored the topic of evolution. Uh, it was always pointed out to us by our professors that, you know, here it is, this section, and you should probably read about this because you should probably know about it. And that was it. And so after I graduated, uh, I taught public school for a while, then had kids. And, you know, some of those questions got put on the back burner until about 10 years after uh, my husband and I graduated, both from the same Christian university, uh, the biology department at my alma mater was just thrown into turmoil because there was a, at the time, a very popular um, young earth creationist apologist. You see still around here and there. You'll see his, his name pop up. But he decided to cause a lot of trouble at my university. And he went after the careers of two of our most beloved um, biology professors, one in particular I had worked with, I taught labs for, and using some of the uh, uh, more conservative alumni, he, he destroyed the careers of our, our beloved biology professor over the sin that he mentioned evolution and that he taught evolution. And it all, you know, the questions that I had were came back to me at that point. The questions that I'd had in college, like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we can kind of close one eye and squint and we can kind of see the, the creation 
um, order, the creation week and the fossil record if we don't think too hard about it. And that's where I'd kind of been as a biology major is it's got to fit in there somehow because I can't, I can't, uh, you know, ditch the Bible and I can't um, deny what I, I'm learning in science class and biology class, but I didn't think too much more about it until this big kerfuffle happened at my university. And I saw that people were losing their careers in a um, Christian university because they were teaching um, evolution. And at that point, I started in earnest to read what I could. Um, the first uh, person that I read in depth was actually an old earth creationist. He would probably consider himself old earth intelligent design. He's still around. He still writes. And although I would disagree with his conclusions about uh, biological evolution and, and intelligent design, I am just forever grateful to him because he came from a geology background and he was the first one that I read that was a man of science, a man of faith. And he said, you know, the earth is not 6,000 years old. The earth is ancient and that Genesis one is an undated verse. And that seems so simple, but it was just the biggest aha moment for me. And I'm like, you're right. It's not a dated verse. You know, why do we decide that the earth is so young? And so I would say that um, coming to a, an acceptance that the earth was very, very ancient and that we didn't have to somehow cram the fossil record into six days was just my, you know, crack in the door. And from that point, I read what I could uh, could about um, both secular and from people of faith uh, on evolution to give myself a good background. Probably the game changer for me was 1999's um, Finding Darwin's God by Kenneth Miller. That was a big game changer for me because he he um, he just laid it out there and he didn't you know he, he didn't um, cut any corners. And I realized that that I I could no longer be intellectually consistent, intellectually honest, and say that um, evolution did not occur the way the evidence says that it did. And so uh, from that point on, it became um, a particular passion for me to to read more, to write about it, um, to listen to speakers, visit with speakers when I could. And um, I started a, a blog several years ago and and focused uh, primarily on um, the intersection of faith and science and added a little bit more um, cultural and, and modern medicine into that. But I still try to kind of live in that um, precinct of, of a person of faith and a person of science. And and as a person of faith, we're not required to give up either. Yeah, your your journey uh, sounds uh, similar to my own in that, you know, I went from I was an old earth creationist for a very long time. Uh, I just devoured uh, all the books that I could find uh, on intelligent design and uh, reasons to believe I was a big fan. Oh, I'm still a big fan of reasons to believe they put out some some good stuff, uh, even though, you know, you know, they, they've got some good stuff on the fine tuning argument and the Big Bang cosmology. But yeah, uh, it's it's easier. It's easier to become an evolutionary creationist when you've already accepted the the ancient the ancientness of the universe and the earth 
than if you are a young earther. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like it's less of a dramatic change. You're just adding in a biological theory to an already old. Hello. <laughs> oh God. And to, for me, the, the game changing book was, uh, Aaron Yilmaz's deliver us from evolution. I read that back in like 2018 and the scientific, uh, the book was like divided in two halves. Um, the first half dealt with theology and the Bible and the second half dealt with science. And I was just, blown away by uh the case that he made for uh common ancestry right right well definitely if you're coming from a faith background that's got to be a piece of it you've got to um come to some kind of um a, a consensus at least for your own you know intellectual honesty about what you're going to do with the the documents with genesis with the bible yeah yeah um so in your now, in your own estimate, you know, how damaging do you think uh, that the science versus religion dichotomy peddled by both sides? You know, both sides are to blame. We got like people like Answers in Genesis on the one hand, and we got people like Richard Dawkins and Bill Nye on the other hand. And they're just they're both perpetuating, you know, that you have to choose uh, just how uh, how how bad is is the damage from your own observation your own you know encounters with people um like yeah how bad is it well you know you 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 brought something up that that immediately came to my mind i think that ken ham and richard dawkins would be you know horrified to realize that we're putting them in the same boat but they absolutely both are they're absolutely come down on the most extreme ends of the spectrum that say, you know, you cannot be a person of faith and a person of science. I mean, and there are a lot of people that aren't as hardline as Dawkins is about it, but you know, there's people in between there. And I think that um, the damage is coming, be coming from um, the fact that people of faith, I believe in general have allowed people who aren't people of faith to take the lead in these conversations. Um, I think we've allowed uh, people that have no faith to take the lead on, can a person be um, a person of faith and a person of science? And um, I think because of that, the narrative becomes even more entrenched that faith and science are at odds. I, um, I mentioned the, um, the kerfuffle that uh, blew up at my own alma mater. I have to tell you that uh, today I'm proud to say that um, I've been um, recently in, uh, in contact and in communication with some of the biology professors that currently teach there. And I have um, the, the first year biology major lab manuals uh, for Abilene Christian. And I was so glad to see that from literally day one in biology for majors, evolution is presented on the first day, first chapter as the, um, as the underlying principle of all biology. And from that point on, evolution is just a given in biology class. And um, it's, it's discussed then within the different contexts as they go through the syllabus. But all of that to say, 
is that uh, one of the professors that I've been in contact with has said that he has more success in convincing Christian students about evolution than the colleagues that he is in communication, communication with at secular schools. He's saying that when these Christian students hear about evolution in a secular school, they just assume it's atheistic, like they've always heard. But he says they know me as a Christian. They know me as their biology professor. And when I explain evolution to them, he said, I have more success because I'm more convincing to them um, that evolution doesn't have to be um, atheistic. So I think that people of faith, people of science, are uh, really missing the boat there when we let people who don't have a faith take the lead in these conversations. Um, I mentioned in the book a couple of students that I had that gave me pushback um, conveniently at the end of the semester. Both of these students waited till the last day in class and both of them reached out to me in writing and they have not been the last ones. I had another student just this last semester, spring semester, that um, reached out to me um, in writing. And these students um, were making the case that they were Christians. Uh, they understood that they had to answer um, the questions correctly or they wouldn't get credit. And honestly, it was embarrassing to me. I felt embarrassed because these students thought that I was this atheistic professor that their parents had warned them about and that I was the one that was going to destroy their faith if they let me. And so because they reached out to me through email, I, I reached back out to them in writing and, and said, oh, no, no, I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian. I would love to talk to you about how um, I am a person of faith and a person of science. I unfortunately didn't have any takers from any of the students that reached out to me. Um, I didn't even hear back from them. You know, all I can conclude is that it was just too scary. I mean, if you're told as as a, a rising freshman going off to college that there are professors at your university who will make you lose your faith, you're going to stay far away, even if the professor you know reaches out to you in good faith. So. I think it's very damaging. I just would like to see more Christians take the lead in the conversations. Um, you know, if but we're going to have to to um, do more things like you were doing with this podcast, uh, with some of the websites that are doing like BioLogos and some of the others who are trying to make that point because I, I have a real fear for. Um, people of your generation, my kids' generation, you're my kids' age, ages. And, you know, if we go to these kids and we say, you know, make this faith your own, and but there's things that you have to um, believe based on faith, like uh, the incarnation of Christ or the resurrection or miracles, and we're asking um, a new generation to believe these things that require faith, how are they going to believe us when we deny things that are empirical, that are observable, that are demonstrable? They're right in front of us. We're denying those. We're requiring that those be denied, but yet we're asking them to believe things that require faith. So, yeah, I think it's it, I think it has the possibility of being extremely damaging. Um, 
to faith. Yeah. But on the bright side, I do think we are seeing a generational shift. I was just uh, talking about this uh, to someone earlier that more right now in the apologetics community, I, I see that it's dominated by mostly old earth creationists. And that's good because uh, as I was telling someone uh, in the uh, Answers to Answers in Genesis Facebook group, you know, the the old earthers like Frank Turek and Hugh Ross and um, William Lane Craig, I think he's an old earther. I think he leans evolutionary creationist, but they, unlike a, unlike people like Ken Ham and Kent Hovind, they don't they don't beat the one drum. Um, they they don't you know Darwin is bad. Darwin is bad. Darwin is bad. You know they have a lot of good stuff like the like the case for the resurrection, the case for the reliability of the New and Old Testaments, like the Kalam cosmological argument. They actually give good arguments that are you know grounded in in data, and it's not just Darwin bashing a hundred percent of the time. But but these are these are people these are men in their fifties sixties you know William Lane Craig is like seventy five people my age and people like Michael Jones who runs Inspiring Philosophy um, uh, Kyle Lander uh, lots of um, my fellow YouTubers um, uh, apologists who are like un under the age of I'd say forty um, I'm twenty nine uh, I'd say most, uh, a, a growing number of us are becoming theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists. And so in probably like 50 years time, you might have the majority of apologists at these conferences being evolutionary creationists. That's, that's my prediction. I could be wrong about that. Maybe the rate, maybe we're, we'll still be in a minority, but that's, that's my prediction for like the next few decades. Yeah. You know, and, and hopefully that is the direction we're going, but I will tell you just probably a month ago, I had a man come up to me after church. I had not ever met him in real life. And he, you know, has the story of I've got this teenage son. He's going to be going off to college and majoring in science. And he just feels like he can't have faith. And you know, this was a father who was obviously open to having his son, you know, talk to me. But at the same time, that was the message his son had had concluded was that he couldn't go off and be a science major and continue to be a, a person who practiced faith. And so, you know, it's still out there. It really is still out there. And um, it's it's scary. You know, I've I've had kids leave home and go off to college and they change in a lot of ways that it's not always fun for parents to watch. But I will say there was one thing that my kids with everything they wrestled with, one thing they didn't have to wrestle with was reconciling faith and science. And so, you know, that took one thing, you know, off the, off the burner. Yeah. But this, uh, this generational shift and even, even the people in the older generation, like, like Dr. Craig and um, my my friend Tim Stratton. I mean, he's not really old. He's in his forties. Um, yeah, that's they, not. Well, they don't. They don't. The one they they're um they even even if they don't accept even if they don't accept evolution, they do tell people, hey, it's not a it's not a hill to die on. Don't worry. Right. About it. Right. And I that is that I think um will make a, a whole lot of difference. Yeah. So. You know, these these things, they, they take time. Like I read that 
you know, the church, it took like 200, 200 years for them to get over the whole geocentrism, uh, heliocentrism uh, brouhaha. And uh, evolution has only been around for like, what, 150 something years? Yeah. So, you know, we, it might, it might be a little more, a little bit more time before the, before, I, before we're, we just accept evolution like we accept uh, heliocentrism and we don't even think about it. Yeah. Now, in chapter three of your book, you explain what scientific theories are and how science works. Could you please get into that for our audience? Because when it comes to the word theory, the fallacy of equivocation is so is committed so often. They they think when when they hear theory, they think of like it being used. Uh, I have a theory of right. where my shoes went. Right, right. Like I always say, you know, at the, at the beginning of every football season, my theory is that my Dallas Cowboys are going to win it all. You know, that's a theory. That's not even a good guess. You know, but we use theory in our common vernacular to mean something that we're guessing about or that we probably it's something we have an opinion about. That's probably a better way to look at how, you know, the general term is used is I have an opinion on something and that becomes my theory. And I try to make this uh, point to my students the first day of every semester, that that is not what scientists mean at all when they use the word theory. And that when a scientist uses the word theory, it's something not that they have an opinion about, but it's something about which they are quite certain. So I would say that probably a, a good way to think of it is that theories are the foundations upon which any discipline is built. Science, uh, social science, whatever the discipline it is, Theories are the foundations upon which that discipline is built. So, for example, chemistry is built on the foundation of the atomic theory. Can you imagine doing chemistry if you take atoms completely out of the picture? You, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do any kind of modern chemistry. You couldn't do modern physics uh, without mathematics. And so it's very discouraging to hear people refer to evolution as evolution is only a theory or evolution is just a theory um, within when in when reality um, if you're going to give a hierarchy to scientific terms a theory is going to rank higher than a fact or even a law um, it's theories that make sense of facts and laws. And it's theories that bind facts and bind laws together. Uh, laws are things, facts are things based on observations. And it's theories that make sense of the facts. And so um, I think we have a, a big hurdle here when the general uh, non-scientific public hears that evolution is a theory. Um, although I think if you ask that same public that says evolution is just a theory, I think if you ask them, well, you know, if you got to have surgery this week and your, your surgeon comes in and she says, well, you know, I'm in a hurry and I don't think I'm going to wash my hands today. And the, the OR text didn't have time to sterilize the instruments, but that's okay. Germ theory 
is just a theory. Well, I think we would understand that um, in the case of germ theory, it's not just the surgeon's opinion that she might need to wash her hands. It's uh, something that's been substantiated over decades and decades and research holding true across um, uh, many different scientists, many different studies. And that's the same with evolution. You know, we're not going to jump out of an airplane without a parachute because gravitation is just a theory. So I guess what I would try to explain to someone who's struggling with, you know, opinion, a, a theory as just an opinion, like we use it in the vernacular or theory, the way that scientists use it. I would, I would, I would not put it this way. You know, we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic and, you know, thank God we have some vaccines that are working. Um, we're also trying to find some therapeutics to um, some antiviral therapeutics. So let's say that a researcher uh, devoted their lab to new antiviral therapeutics. So what if this researcher is going to start trying to find the direction forward? Is that researcher going to start by looking at the horoscope of a sick person or how the person's stars are aligned or look at their humors to see if their humors are out of balance? You know, of course not. Um, a modern medical researcher is going to start with the foundation of germ theory and, and work from there. Um, germ theory is the underlying foundation of modern medicine. Evolution is the underlying foundation of modern biology. It's, it's, it's no wonder that, you know, the famous quotation is that nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. You know, in, in Texas, I live in Texas, and about every few years or so, we get um, uh, evolution moves into uh, the political arena, generally uh, when it comes to curriculum for the state schools, and something will come up that says uh, we need to require our schools to teach the strengths and weaknesses of theories, and that we need to um, need to teach the controversy, so to speak, but primarily it's worded this way, teach the strengths and weaknesses of theories. Well, it's, it's no surprise. Nobody is advocating that we teach the strengths and weaknesses of gravitational theory. And no one is advocating we teach the strengths and weaknesses of germ theory. Uh, the theory that's unspoken, but it's obvious the one that we're discussing is evolution. Um, so the, under, the misunderstanding of what scientists mean by the word theory um, definitely is the problem when it comes to public policy um, in education because you know we want to just try if something's just an opinion of course we want to discuss strengths and weaknesses uh, we need to understand that when scientists talk about a theory they're talking about something that is quite well established now uh, I just I just thought of this uh, as you were talking, um, but another case of equivocation that I often hear I, I get it a lot when pe when people find out I'm an evolutionary creationist they ask me well how can you how can you believe that God had purpose in a purposeless system and they believe they believe it's purposeless because um, evolution 
happens through random mutations. You know, that it's random. It's it's chance driven. And how can you know how how can there be purpose behind something that's random? Um, but in my reading, they the word random uh, as it is used uh, by scientists is not the same way. It's not that it's not that way that we use in the the uh, commonly like um, you know uh, it it happened by chance. How, right, right. Yeah, to explain to our audience like what scientists mean by random. Well, is there is there some kind of metaphysical dimension there? Well, there is a degree, there is a degree of randomness in evolution. And you already mentioned that, you know, um, mutations are quite often random as, you know, as, as uh, in that, you know, why does a copying error happen when DNA is replicating? So while mutations are random, the mutations that take off within a population, um, that particular uh, phenomenon is not random. Uh, hence the whole idea of uh, by natural selection. If that random mutation is um, damaging or if it doesn't provide um, a, a, a an advantage of some sort, it's not going to take off in the population. So that is not random. But so you've got a degree of randomness and non-randomness in evolution. Uh, but I would back it up a little bit to say there's all sorts of things in biology that are random that we don't question. It's random whether a sperm with an X or a sperm with a Y fertilizes an egg cell, you know, uh, without any intervention um, there in the laboratory. But that's random. It's random uh, which sperm uh, it fertilizes the cell. It's random, back it up a little bit. You know, the, the whole process of meiosis. There's so many different random um, aspects of meiosis. And I won't give you my mini lecture there, but just you know, understand that just creating egg cells, creating those gametes is full of random events. One chromosome goes this way and the other one goes that way. And there's it's just random. Um, crossing over where DNA is swapped out between um, sister chromatids is completely random. And so in the, cre in the birth of a child, there's all sorts of randomness that goes into the, the, the birth, the creation of that child. It's a random, uh, it's almost one random event after another, yet we still Thank God for the birth of this child. We still praise God and we thank God uh, for the new child or the new grandchild or the new sibling. And so I, I think it's it's maybe a false dichotomy to think that because a process is natural or because a process is random, that God doesn't ordain that process and that God is not in it because he ordains it all, whatever that process is, God ordains it. And so I don't think we should be frightened of randomness um, or natural processes in, yeah. you know in what, the natural world. We, you know what, really, uh, back, back in 2016, um, when I was uh, first investigating uh, theistic evolution, um, and that, and, um, 
what you said what you said earlier about the the Christian professor how he is able to convince Christians uh, easier than secularists I can resonate with that because mm-hmm. uh, it was it was the it was people like Francis Collins and Aaron Yilmaz and, and right. Deborah Harzma that that you know right. they, they got through to me whereas people like Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins didn't right uh, and what my but, students what, don't know what, that I, you know, I don't, they don't know I'm not at a Christian university, so they don't assume that I am a Christian. So they automatically were skeptical of anything yeah. that I had to say. But, uh, but back when I was uh, reading BioLogos's blog posts, uh, it, the whole randomness issue, it really helped me. Uh, Dennis Venema, he wrote, uh, he wrote about, you know, the, the birth of a child like you did. And he connected it with Psalm 139, 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And he said, hey, that's a natural process. And there's some random stuff going on here, but we still think it's under God's providence. And yes. in Deborah Harzma's uh, book that she co-authored with her husband, uh, she she quoted Proverbs 16:33, which says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Um, so the, I mean, a lot. So from the way I understand it is it's, it's a chance event from our perspective. It's uh, it, we, we can't predict it. Like we can't predict when a mutation is going to occur. We can't predict, you know, some of these things, we can't predict some things in the quantum uh, realm. Uh, but according to Proverbs 16, 33, you know, just as you can cast dice and cast lots, uh, nevertheless, it's it, it's every decision is from the Lord. It's not like God is not providentially overseeing these things. You know, and in my evolution, so to speak, of you know how I how I am reconciling my theology with my science, I've become more comfortable with the mystery of it that I can say that I may not can explain exactly how God ordains it and how God is um, overall, but my faith tells me that God is, and I'm just okay. You know, I've come to um, a feeling that I think that God is more concerned with our functioning as his image bearers in the world than how we came to be, whether it was a net, you know, this natural random process that that's not the important thing. The important thing is what we do with who we are. Yeah. So many creationists argue that atheists treat macroevolution as a pet theory that must be protected at all costs, lest creationism win and God gets his foot in the door. Uh, this, in fact, this was the very premise of the movie Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. Right. Uh, what do you think? Is evolution a theory that's not allowed to be criticized? Well, absolutely. Um, I would say absolutely not, because, um, you know, we just, you know, as we were discussing, you know, what do scientists mean when they say theory? You know, there's something about which they are quite certain now, does that mean that no theory will ever be tweaked? Of course not. Um, do we know everything we need to know about germs? No. So germ theory will be tweaked. Do we know everything we need to know about evolution? No. Evolution theory will be tweaked. But when we talk about a theory, we're talking about something where the fundamentals are not going to be changed. You know, we're not going to decide that it's bad airs or humors that cause germs, although we may tweak the theory. And the same with evolution. 
Uh, for example, the more we know about modern genetics, the more we're beginning to understand the impact that epigenetics has on natural selection. This is a whole new area of study. And, and so in other words, how much does the environment um, uh, influence phenotypes that we see? And so um, this is an area that we didn't even have the vocabulary to discuss a couple of decades ago, the, the area of epigenetics. So once we know more about things like this, we're going to tweak the theory of evolution. But the fundamentals are not going to change. And I always think it's funny when people, you know, act like that scientists are hiding something and that scientists just want to, as you as you put it, not allow God to, to get his foot in the door. Um, I think that comes from a place of not really understanding how scientists work because scientists love to prove each other wrong. That's kind of the whole concept behind peer review. Um, I mentioned this example in the book. I love it. But the, the, the chemist who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2018 on January 1, 2020, she tweeted out, well, this is a bummer. Um, I'm having to retract a paper. Now, fortunately for her, it wasn't the Nobel paper, but it was another paper um, because there were problems with her data. So once she published it, she just, you know, was slaughtered in peer review. And this woman had won the Nobel Prize the year before, but it didn't matter. Uh, scientists are going to prove you wrong if you are wrong, regardless of whether you've won a Nobel Prize. And so to say that scientists are protecting a pet theory from any kind of uh, criticism, I think is a, is a misunderstanding of how scientists truly work. And I know um, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say one time that if anybody anywhere could, could demonstrate that evolution was not the best explanation we have for the evidence that we see, that person would win a Nobel Prize. You know, bring it on. Show us your evidence. Nobody is protecting the theory from criticism. It's just that the theory at this point has become so well established, the fundamentals of it are not going to change. Yeah, and I know some say, well, it can't be criticized because it works within the, the realm of methodological naturalism. So supernatural explanations aren't allowed. And, you know, I... I went in to, I, when I re-examined the evidence for evolution, I actually didn't operate under methodological naturalism. I just asked, you know, I asked two, two questions. First, is this kind of data what I would expect to find in the world if God created all the animals through independent miracles? Right. Secondly, I realized evolution is a cumulative case. It's not just one fossil or one series of fossils. Right. It's all right. these different fossils. It's yes. all this different genetic material. It's, it's, it's all put it all in a big pile. Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's more like, it's more like uh, putting pieces of a puzzle together. And when I, when I looked at it as a cumulative case and when I asked, okay, what, what, you know, does evolution predict and what would special creation predict? I found that evolution won. And I was, I, you know, I'm, I'm still totally open to the idea that God, you know, miraculously poofed different animals into being. But what we, what I read in the literature about the, the genetics and the fossils and, and all that, it just, it makes more sense on a common ancestry view than, than, you know, on this whole God spoke 
animals into being and you know there was a there was an empty pond and then he spoke and then ducks appeared yeah and you know and what you just said there um with special creationism is actually the same problem i have in with intelligent design that if every thing let's just say every you know everything in the natural world is a choice made by the creator or a design um, known only to the designer in the in the mind of the designer in the mind of the creator if everything is an independent special choice or special design my question is how is anything knowable why research uh, if, if everything is done independently by a mind that we can never know i mean why do science why research so you know, let's talk. Of, let's talk about some of the evidence for uh, an old Earth that you cover in your book. Like, what are what are some of the ways we know the universe and Earth are really as old as scientists say they are? Well, I always like to start an explanation of that by saying, you know, let's just look at the things we can see with our eyes. Let's don't go into physics or chemistry, and, uh, and the, you know, the the, the big math. Let's just start with what we can see with our eyes. And, and we've all known since we were children that you can count the rings on a tree when you cut a tree down and you can see how old the tree was by counting tree rings. Well, we know that there is a, a, a place in the Sierra Nevada called the Bristlecone Pines. And we have found trees in this particular forest that are nearly 10,000 years old. We can count the rings um, to, that, that approach 10,000 years old. So already, you know, we are at, we're, we're, we surpass that 6,000 year mark. You know, young earth creationists usually say 6,000 to 10,000, but immediately we have tree rings that are 10,000 years old. Well, let's talk about lake sediments. There's a lake in Japan that's particularly calm. It, it hasn't been, it's just, it, there's um, a, a lot of things about this lake that it's not disturbed and it's been sitting undisturbed for a very long time. So it's a great place to study lake bed sediments. Well, in this particular lake, oh, and you can, do, you can look at sediments, um, you know, each year you have a different, um, different things settle out, different pollens, different um, kinds of sand, different, you know, microorganisms are going to settle out. So we can count these layers of sediments in lakes, just like we can count tree rings. And there's a lake in Japan that we can count 60,000 years of sediment in this lake. And again, we're not using some big um, physical uh, physics, uh, nuclear process in order to determine this, we, we can count these. We can count these with our eyes. And then we can talk about ice cores. Um, each year there's a snow, each year where there's regular snowfall, um, each snowfall is slightly different than the year before. Again, uh, pollens, uh, particulates in the air make each year's snowfall different. Well, we can drill down into ice in different parts of the world. And we have found ice cores that are 800,000 years old. So before we get into any kind of radiometric dating or anything that's, that's harder to understand, we can almost immediately leap far past 
six to 10,000 years old just by looking at tree rings, lake sediments, ice cores. But then if you do get into some of the more complex dating, uh, radiometric dating of rocks, you know, just this is a very simple explanation of it, but there are some elements that are unstable. They're radioactive. They'll throw off particles and in a, in a process called decay until they decay into more stable element. So we can look at a rock and we can look at the ratio of unstable to stable elements. And we know that the speed at which elements will decay, different elements decay at different rates. So if we know the elements that we're looking at and we know the rate of decay, we can look um, at, the, at the ratio of stable to unstable and we can date rocks on the earth. And the rocks that we've found, the oldest rocks that we find on earth, you know, date the earth at about 4 billion or so years old. And so, um, you know, we make a, a big jump there. And that's with the, the elements that will date that far. We have other elements um, that will not date up to the billions of years, but still they'll date into the millions and early billions of years. And so, like you said before, it's not one line of evidence. We've definitely triangulated the evidence. Um, we have it just we have aging of the rocks, and then we have all this physical evidence um, from just the years of growth or the years of sediment or ice sediment in the world. And you know. Um, the problem that I have with, with the denial of this evidence is that, for example, in the radiometric dating, uh, I know that young earth creationists um, have a lot of problem in saying, you know, I, I don't even know all of the arguments. I've, I've read through them. But my question would be, radiometric dating isn't just used to age the earth. We use the same um, technologies for many things um, across our cultures, across our societies. So my question would be, why are these processes trustworthy um, in one aspect of science, but we totally discount them when they're used to date the earth? You know, that's that's a mystery to me. Um you know, and, and, and to deny especially these these visible, um, observable things tells me that we can't believe our eyes. You know, the natural world was created to be something that's just not, you know. Um, yeah. Um, so what what do you think about the uh, the. I, and honestly, I, I see this as like a last ditch effort. It's, it's, I, it's an, it, it's really ad hoc to me, um, re regardless of any theological problems you may have with it. But uh, what, what do you think about the appearance of age? Like, okay, yeah, all of this, all that stuff you said is cool and all, but God could have just created the world to make it look like that. Well, right. And, you know, the, the, the analogy that I usually hear is, you know, God created Adam full grown. Why could he not um, create the earth full grown? Well, I've got multiple problems with that. First of all, um, it tells me that what we see is not what is. And that everything we're looking at is actually um, fiction. 
you know, we have an earth that just appears for all the world to be very, very ancient. Um, we didn't talk about the universe, but, you know, we know how far away stars are. We know the speed of light so we can date the universe. But if we go with appearance of age, we're saying, you know, God just created this beautiful video for us of light coming from the supposedly faraway stars. And so we're just viewing, you know, a nice little movie that God made for us. And, and somehow that is supposed to be more, um, more acceptable to us than the idea that God created using natural um, processes. I have a real problem with what that says about God. It tells me that God deceived us, that God filled creation with all sorts of red herrings. And, um, and, and, and I mentioned before that, you know, the first scripture that I remember learning when I first began to seriously investigate this on my own as an adult was a scripture that says, God is not a man, that he lies. And if you were saying that what I'm seeing with my eyes, what I'm observing with my eyes, what the earth is telling me is all fiction, then that does not, um, that does not go with the, the, the picture of God that I have that says that we can know him by his creation. And if we should know him, then we should know that what um, creation is telling us is, is reality. Yeah. And what I usually point out is that, you know, the, the whole Adam and Eve, uh, the wedding, the, the wine at the wedding at Cana are disanalogous to the universe because if any, if a scientist had missed, you know, met Adam and Eve and said, and mistakenly thought, oh, here is a 25-year-old man or a 25-year-old woman, you know, uh, um, they could have said, no, 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 we were, we were created yesterday. God specially created us. And he would be like, oh, okay. The wine that was, you know, it was the best tasting wine, so it was aged. Well, everybody was there. They witnessed Jesus perform the miracle. But the universe can't say, no, no, you're, I'm only 6,000 years old, guys. And, you know, so unlike Adam and Eve, who can speak for themselves, uh, the universe can't, you know, like some kind of pantheistic entity just say, hey, you're dating me all wrong. I'm much older than I look. And, uh, and of course, nobody was actually there to witness, you know, except except God. So it's, it's disanalogous to Adam and Eve and the, and the, right. And, and, the and, and I also, and I always want to ask, you know, well, God could have created us all five minutes ago with all of history and memories implanted in our minds and people are like, Oh no, no, that, that couldn't be. But I'm like, well, why not? It's the same. It's the same concept. You know, you, you created us with, with the, with the, experience of age you just implanted all of our memories in our head you know to me that makes as much sense yeah i mean it, it opens up a whole pandora a whole pandora's box um so let's talk about some of the evidence for evolution that you cover in your book um what type of evidence is there for evolution well as you mentioned before there's not just one line of evidence it's definitely triangulated um, you know, the evidence that we've probably uh, had for the longest is the fossil record. And uh, just quite simply to me, the most um, the most 
explanatory thing about the fossil record is that there is an order to it. If you go in the oldest rocks, you're going to find uh, organisms of some sort that have bodies but no heads. Uh, you go up a little bit further, a little bit newer rocks, and you begin to find things with heads. Keep going to newer rocks, and you begin to find things with backbones, and then you begin to find things with four limbs. Then you find begin to find uh, creatures that walk on two legs. And then you begin to find some evidence of creatures that um, have, have bodies covered with hair and they produce milk. And what you don't see in the fossil record is that the primitive doesn't go away once they appear. So in other words, um, there still are primitive creatures like marine sponges that don't have heads and, and we still have them in all layers of the fossil. We still have them today. But what we don't have, what we don't find in the fossil record are things that walk on two legs in those oldest rocks or in the next oldest rocks or even the next oldest rocks. Once things appear, they may still continue to appear in the record. But things that appear later in the record, we don't find in earlier and older rocks. There is an order to the fossil record. And the fossil record tells a story of an unfolding, of an increasing complexity of life. Uh, not, that the, not that the less complex disappear, but there is an increasing complexity to it. So I think that's a, a, a very strong line of evidence is the fossil record has an order to it. Um, common architecture, I think, is another strong line of evidence. So if you just look at tetrapods, those four-limbed animals, uh, no matter what tetrapod you're talking about, you cannot name a tetrapod that does not have the exact same bone architecture. You've got one big bone, then you've got two bones, and then you've got lots of little blobby bones in a wrist of some sort, and then you've got digit of some sorts. Regardless of the tetrapod, we see the same. Uh, we see the same architecture. Now, sometimes this uh, architecture has been reduced or reabsorbed or changed. Sometimes that architecture is stretched, but regardless, the architecture is the same. And so you have this... Um, you have this evidence that these tetrapods all share a common ancestor with the original, the, 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 the primary, uh, the, the ancestral, I guess is the best way to put it, the ancestral tetrapod had this bone architecture and that every tetrapod um, that, that uh, diverged from that ancestral tetrapod carries that same bone layout, that same um, tetrapod limb architecture. But probably our best evidence that we have is something that we haven't all, always had up until the last few decades. And that's evidence from the molecular level, uh, the, the genetic level and the molecular level. Um, we see that all throughout um, organisms, we see that there are ties from uh, more complex back to the primitive. 
So for example, um, the human eye is always given as an example of, oh, it's just so complex. It could have never evolved. Look at the human eye. It's got this, it's got that. How could a, a random process have, um, have resulted in the eye? And I think on the website that you're talking about, the Facebook page, the answers to answers in Genesis, that was recently a, a discussion there. You know, how do you just grow an eye from, from nothing? Um, but that, that is a misunderstanding of how evolution actually works. And we have found that there is a protein called crystalline um, that makes up the vertebrate lens and the vertebrate eye. But, you know, guess what? We have found that same protein crystalline in a chordate, um, a, a, an ancestor to vertebrates. We have a few chordates, non-vertebrate chordates that are, that are still um, living today. And in these living chordates that are basically giving us a, um, a, a snapshot into what our primitive ancestors looked like, in this chordate that doesn't even have a head, much less an eye, this chordate produces the protein crystalline. So we know that long before there were even vertebrates, much less a vertebrate that had the complex vertebrate eye, we know that the chordates, our chordate ancestors, were producing the protein that is needed to create that lens. Now, why did the vertebrates start uh, expressing that gene um, to build the protein crystalline? you know, in their eye? We don't have the answer to that. But what we do know is that the genes were there. The genes to produce that protein crystalline are found in a far more primitive ancestor. And likewise, uh, there was a researcher who was um, researching a um, these single-celled organisms called choanoflagellates. They are... Um, they exist, they're kind of these protists like plant-like, animal-like, they kind of live in that, in that um, middle area there. But choanoflagellates are single-celled. And this researcher was uh, astounded to find that these choanoflagellates um, have a gene that produces a protein called cadherin. Up until this point, up until her research, we thought that cadherin was only found in multicellular organisms because cadherin is literally used to stick cells together. Cadherin is literally used to build multicellular bodies. So what in the world was this protein that is, that's used to build multicellular bodies, what was it doing being expressed in a single-celled organism, these single-celled choanoflagellates? What the researcher found was Choanoflagellates were not using this sticky protein to stick to other cells, but they were using it to stick to food that floated by. So they used it to stick to and capture food. And so once we were able to analyze these organisms at a genetic level, at the molecular level, we are finding that there is connections um, deep, deep into our um, evolutionary ancestry. You know, and we could go on. We we have um, we know that that primates, humans included, uh, we don't produce vitamin C, and that's why we have to have it in our diet. 
Um, other mammals do produce vitamin C. Well, we have the gene to produce vitamin C, as do the other uh, closely related primates, but that gene is broken. And interestingly, that broken vitamin C gene is broken in the same way. And so you have to ask, if it were not for evolution, why do we have a broken gene broken in the same way as do our closest evolutionary ancestors? Um, and then, of course, you know, genetics has just been the smoking gun for common ancestry. I don't know if you want to talk about the human chromosome, too, at this point. Um, but after the um, after the human genome was sequenced uh, back in the 90s with Dr. Francis Collins, science rock star. Um, and then after the uh, sequencing of the chimpanzee chromosome, chimpanzee genome, we found that human chromosome two is without a doubt a fusion of two chimpanzee chromosomes. In fact, we can study at such a, a distinctive genetic level, we can tell at what point that fusion occurs. And so, you know, looking at these, just a, a quick look at three lines of evidence, the fossil record, common architecture, the molecular level, you know, you, you triangulate these three lines of, of evidence together. And, you know, you just have to ask yourself, what's the most obvious solution? Um, you know, Oakham's razor uh, that, that tells us that, um, that usually the simplest, most obvious solution is the correct one. Um, I used to, in a class I used to teach for elementary teachers, I used to start out the class by putting a, a bathroom scale down that I had, I had monkeyed with and it had changed the scale to 2000 pounds and ask you know, some poor volunteer to stand on it and ask them why they thought um, my scales said 2000 pounds. And I said, you know, let's think of every possible reason you can even think of. And we thought, oh, you know, we're standing in a, in a, in a wormhole to Jupiter and the gravity is greater, or, you know, some, she actually has 2000 pounds worth of rocks in her pocket, you know, all these wild explanations that could explain, they could explain why the scales read 2000 points. And then some, you know, intrepid soul would raise their hand and say, I think it's because you wrote 2000 on there with a Sharpie marker, which is the correct answer. And it's obvious and it's the most obvious answer. So, you know, I, I wrote the book because I was frustrated with the mental gymnastics that I felt people of faith were doing in trying to explain evolution. You know, we, we just bent over backwards to try to force um, what we see in science into a literal reading of, of Genesis. When, if you just look at the most common obvious answer is that life evolved and that life shares common ancestry. So if, if this is what the, the, the evidence is telling us, why are we doing all these mental gymnastics to try to force some other solution? Yeah, the, that, and some of that uh, genetic evidence that you talked about it really um, was impressive to me. Like the, the whole vitamin C thing, the, the 
chimpanzee chromosomes and other things like uh, that you didn't even mention, like endogenous retrovirus. Or right, ERVS. right. And these were the things that I thought uh, when I asked the question, when I was reading uh, Aaron Yilmaz's book, uh, is this what I would expect if God miraculously poofed uh, right. different animals into being over 4 billion years? Because I was an old earth creationist. Right. Uh, uh, I was like, I would, in order to hold the, old earth you know the old earth special the special creation brand of uh, old right. earth creationism i would have to believe that god created chimpanzees and human beings separately and he just decided to put these weird things in the human genome and in the chimp genome and he decided to put like you know reptile tooth making genes in chickens right right when chickens have no business making teeth right and they're, right. Not, they're not supposed to they never do only when these genes are turned back on this just makes more sense if common ancestry is true right why do humans have a yolk gene that's broken you know why why what's the most obvious answer the most obvious answer is we share common ancestry and you know we've um, you know, but we've decided that that is, you know, um, is is insulting. I think in some cases, you know, you can't yeah. make a monkey out of me. That kind of. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you talked about um, you talked about fossils. I when when I first uh, you know came out on Facebook and said, hey, you know, I believe evolution is true now, but don't worry, I'm still a Christian. Uh, there was just this one guy. His name is Joe. He really berated me, and he was adamant that there are no no transitional forms in the fossil record whatsoever. Uh, so, and he's not the only one who has made that claim. Uh, I mean, now, now other other one other you know creationists and you know ID people they make a, a less wild. Uh, argument. They say there aren't enough uh, right. transitional forms to make a case. But he said, no, there's not any, none whatsoever. Well, right. Uh, and what, how, would you, how would you respond to my friend Joe? What I would say to Joe is you are exactly right, Joe. There is not a missing link. There is not a missing link. In reality, we have identified multiple thousands of what you're referring to as a missing link. Um, or transitional. Scientists tend to refer to them as transitionals. I think that the that the the basis for so much denial of the transitional record is because we have a cartoonish concept of a transition. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that um, that that documentary is Genesis History, I believe is what it's called. It's Genesis yeah. History. And uh, they talk about, they go into some great detail there about transitionals. And, and um, you know, they said, I just can't imagine that, uh, that a God of love would watch his creation flopping around on the ground, trying to evolve lungs, trying to evolve legs. And I think that we have this cartoonish concept that there's some kind of half human, half monkey squirrel fish that's flopping around on the ground out there. Or that one day a chimpanzee woke up and gave birth to a human baby. Um, and, and so if that is our uh, conception of a transitional, 
you know, no, there are no transitions like that. And I think that that perhaps that has been um, a shortcoming on uh, science communicators, science educators on our part is to not make it clear what we mean by these, you know, transitional forms. We've let the missing link um, paradigm kind of rule the day. So uh, when you think missing link, you do think half fish, half monkey, half squirrel, half fish, you know, mermaid, half fish, half human, um, which is a, it's a gross misunderstanding of how evolution works. So one thing I would say to your friend, Joe, and this is not a perfect analogy, but I think it's a good one. I would ask him, who was the very first person who spoke modern English? Can you identify the first person who spoke modern English? Well, no. Can you can you identify the first person? Um, can you identify the last person who spoke Old English? Or who was the first person to speak Middle English? You know, we understand that languages evolved gradually and that we can identify a time when there was no modern English and we can identify a time when there was modern English, but we can't identify the exact very first speaker of modern English. Well, that's, that's a great analogy for how evolution works. Evolution occurs in populations, not individuals. Um, and so we're not going to see a, a fish giving birth to a, a tetrapod, you know, one day or a, 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 an a ape giving birth to a human. That's just a, a misunderstanding of how evolution occurs in populations and not individuals. You know, I think you're a cat fan. I've seen on your on your 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 Facebook page, you like cats. Well, if you have a cat that's born and it has a mutation and it's missing its ears, that cat has not evolved. That cat is not a transitional. But if that trait of having no ears gives it some sort of advantage and it takes off in a population of cats in a few hundred years, we might say, uh, you know, cats may no longer have ears. But to say that the, that the that the fossil record that there just are no transitionals or not enough transitionals, people are looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for this cartoonish half and half, definitively one thing. When evolution really is more like the acquisition of a language, it occurs gradually over time, and you can identify early tetrapods. But you're not going to be able to identify the very first tetrapod that, you know, that walked, that put four legs on the ground. Um, that's not the way that um, evolution works. And then I also think this is also a, an important point that the organisms, the, the creatures that we call transitional are only transitional from our perspective, from sitting here in 2021. We look back and we see, oh, well, that walking whale was a transitional in the evolution to fully marine whales, or that little fox-sized horse is a transitional um, to the modern uh, uh, grassland running, galloping, grass-eating modern horse. From our perspective, they are transitional. But what we have to understand is what we call transitionals they were the man of the hour. They were the, they were just as adapted to their environment. They were who they were. They didn't wake up and feel bad about themselves because they were transitional. They were just 
the organism of the hour. And if they were not adapted or successful, they wouldn't have survived in there. Um, yeah, my favorite, my favorite transitional uh, form is Tiktaalik. I think Tiktaalik oh, yeah. is really cool. Right. I, that's I, I, I love that. I love that. I love that analogy from language. De uh, Dennis Venema, uh, in his presentations, uses that a lot, and he brings up he brings up different versions of John three sixteen. Oh shows, yeah. And uh, I, it's just when you get to the oldest trans, the oldest English. It doesn't even look like it's not even readable. I mean, right. you can, you can kind of understand. You can kind of understand uh, the King James version. You can kind of understand the one before that. But eventually, it just gets so garbled. Is you're like, this isn't even English. This is another language. But, right, right. Uh, and that's kind and and that is kind of the way that evolution works. You know, if you as you go generation by generation, you're not going to see much happening. But you know you know, from, but from epoch to epoch, you're going to notice like right. big differences. Right. Right. So, um, we're, uh, we're about to wrap this episode up, but, uh, I'm going to ask one more question. Cause this is, uh, this is very interesting. I, you know, uh, I've, uh, name drop Aaron Yelmaz, uh, and in, uh, I recommended this book to, to my friend, one of my friends, uh, who, uh, wanted to know why I thought, evolution was true and as she was reading the book she made a you know surprising comment she said that she found the evidence from biogeography to be the most compelling i thought that was weird because i i thought the genetic evidence was the best but it was really the biogeography that she thought oh wow this is this is really good uh could you explain to our audience the uh the biogeography uh and how it supports it's, yeah uh, it's evolution. it's definitely just you know i could have put that up there with my other three lines it's just another you know another uh line another way to triangulate the evidence for evolution but just you know simply a couple of simple examples would be we find that species that live in close proximity to each other like just a few hundred miles from each other even if they live in different habitats more closely resemble each other than do species thousands of miles away in a similar habitat. So there's something about evolving um, and speciation in close proximity to each other that um, impacts that, you know, what those species, what the phenotype looks at. This is probably my favorite example. I love to talk about um, Australia and these isolated habitats and how uh, the effect that evolution processes have had there. So Australia has been isolated from most of the rest of the continents for a very, very long time. And you know that Australia is filled with um, the mammals that are in Australia are all marsupials, almost all marsupials. There are no placental mammals there unless they flew there like bats or they swam there like dolphins. So Australia, this isolated habitat is filled with marsupials. Now, interestingly, marsupials fill all of the usual habitats. There are wolf-like marsupials. There are mouse-like marsupials. There are squirrel-like marsupials. And even though these wolf-like, mouse-like, squirrel-like, anteater-like marsupials, even though they look almost exactly like their placental counterparts, they are more closely related to each other than they are to 
a placental counterpart. So in other words, a wolf-like marsupial is far more closely related to a squirrel-like marsupial than it is to a wolf placental. And so that tells us that this geographic isolation has impacted um, the evolution of the organisms that live in that isolated area. So yeah, that's that's cool. So um, before we before we go, uh, will do you have uh, you mentioned yet that you have a blog? Uh, would you would you like to tell our audience what the name of the blog is and um, you know where they can go to see more uh, stuff from you uh, in addition to the book you wrote? Sure, I blog at Janet K Ray, just J A N E T K R A Y, Janet K Ray dot com. But I've also recently been using my author page on Facebook, which is Janet Kellogg Ray author page. And I will I will post my um, my blogs that I write on my author page as well as my blog page. So if you want it in your inbox or if you want to read it on Facebook, I put it both both places. And and I will just say that um, I, I wrote the book for non-scientists. And that is, that's my audience. I write my postings for non-scientists too, because just because someone is not you know, at the bench or in the field does not mean that they don't need to have an understanding of science. You know, they may not be our scientists, these not, but they are going to be our teachers, our pastors, our policymakers, our school board members, and so they need to have an understanding of evolution. I think we are seeing, uh, I've written a lot in the last year and a half about the, the um, very disappointing science denial that I'm seeing in lots of Christian circles uh, concerning uh, the pandemic. Oh, and yeah. I'm, I'm beginning. I, I, I've, yeah. been, uh, I've been complaining about that on in many posts. Right. And so, you know, what I would say is, and, you know, spoiler alert, this is the second book that's in my head, is, you know, what is the fallout of decades of telling Christians we can't trust scientists when it comes to evolution? And now we're surprised um, when we have a new science problem that Christians aren't trusting scientists and they don't understand the scientific method and they don't understand how science works. And um, I, it's been very disappointing to see some of the choices that some Christians are making, you know, just simply due to not understanding how science works. So um, in my blog and in my author page, I spend a lot of time just looking at some of these contemporary issues of evolution, of cultural things and, um, you know, modern medicine and how it all comes together um, as people of faith. Well, thank you, Janet Kellogg Ray, for coming on the podcast and talking about this. I hope people will get your book and read it. Thank you. It's been it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Evan. So the book is called Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark: The Bible, Modern Science, and the Trouble of Making It All Fit. That's Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark: The Bible and Modern Science of Making It All Fit. And the author and my guest tonight is uh, Janet Kellogg Ray. You can get the book on Amazon.com in paperback and Kindle. I will leave a link to the book uh, in the show notes of this podcast episode, wherever you may be listening, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, the, the Cerebral Faith website, Anchor, or wherever. Um, and before I go, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, my, uh, my newest patrons, 
uh, are at the top of the list here on the re relationship manager, Red Blade Flame and Steel Cat. Good to have you on the Cerebral Faith Patreon board. Uh, Zach Miller, Slam RN, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you'd like to support Cerebral Faith financially, go to patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. Peace out, God bless, and I will see you next time. And keep using the brains that God gave you.